Hey, welcome back. This is Dan Blewett, and it is episode 15 of Dear Baseball Gods. So today, we're actually going to get into who the baseball gods are. But really, we're going to talk about three things today, variance, superstition, and dealing with failure. So all three of these things are tied together. And actually, I'm going to give a a quick shout out to Zach and Ryan, who gave me the uh, motivation to make this podcast. So these two are kids that play on our Warbird Senators teams, and they were having a large debate about superstition in baseball and whether or not it exists, which clearly it does not. However, we're going to get into that today. So I'm going to start with a story. So if you don't know, I, I play poker a little bit on the side. Now that I've retired, poker is, is one of my sort of competitive outlets, and it's also sort of like an intellectual outlet for me. So the more I play it, the more I realize there's just like incredible parallels to baseball, and that's partly because baseball is very different than a lot of other sports. So obviously, and don't take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt because I never played basketball, I never played football, um, but in those sports, there's a little bit less um, subjectivity, I guess, in, in what happens. So you get the ball, you shoot it, it goes in or it doesn't. Um, there's not as many things coming into play within that. So on the baseball field, pitcher throws a pitch, hitter hits it, and then what happens from there, or really what happens after the ball leaves your hand, is completely out of the pitcher's control, right? So um, he can make the pitch as best he can, but during its flight, a number of other things are going to happen. And obviously the hitter's either going to swing or miss. He's maybe going to hit the ball. He's either going to hit it hard or weak. A fielder's either going to make a play or he's not. The ball could, you know, be hit very, very weakly and still go for a hit. You know, we've all seen 15 hoppers right down the line that become doubles, that become game-losing doubles, um, all those things. So there's just a tremendous amount of basically what we call variance in baseball, and it's something that good pitchers learn to deal with and unsuccessful pitchers uh, sort of freak out about, and they don't handle it very well. So recently I was at the poker table, and there was this chatty guy, and uh, – I kind of sit at the poker table and I don't really say much. In fact, I try to say as little as possible because it's really more uh, for me to decompress than it is to chat with random strangers. But he kept going on and on about all these different things. And every time he'd lose a hand, he got really upset about it, especially when he had a, he had the better hand, like the better starting hand. So if you're not a poker player, having larger cards, especially large pairs, uh, are, are better starting hands. So if you have an ace and a king, it's a great starting hand. If you have a pair of kings... That's the second best uh, starting hand you can have. You have a pair of aces. That's the the number one uh, most highly ranked pre-flop hand. So before any of the other cards come down in a, a no-limit hold'em game, um, the, a pair of aces is the best uh, best possible hand. So when you have that hand, you expect to win the vast majority of the time. Okay. So um, I had gotten uh, dealt pocket aces a couple different times, and this guy had beaten me with honestly relatively poor hands that he called with a couple different times. And as he, you know, we spent a couple hours at the poker table together, he had a lot of good hands that would get cracked here and there, or maybe he'd make the wrong play. There's lots of different reasons, but when he got his good hands beaten, he basically threw a fit about it. And he, he you know, goes, well, you know, I, I feel like I get beat all the time. I get, I get a pair of aces, I get pocket kings, or I get ace king, and every time I get them, someone beats me. Like, this is bull crap. You know, like, I just, how do I always have such bad luck? How do I always have such bad luck? But he was focusing on his own bad luck when he didn't realize that I had pocket aces against him two different times, and he beat me both times. I also flopped a straight, and he came back to make a flush on a really terrible call, and honestly, some poor play by him staying in hand when I bet pretty heavy. So he beat me three times with hands that he had no business basically beating me with. But because he made poor plays and he just got lucky, um, he came out the victor. So the way I handled my defeats of this guy who I really didn't like, who I really didn't like getting beat by, um, I didn't really do anything. I just sat there and kept my mouth shut. So for me, as I as I play poker and get better at it, it's a uh, kind of a testament to my baseball career in that I learned that sometimes you make the right play Sometimes you do the do the right thing and things don't go your way. So if you don't have that um, that outlook as a pitcher, you're going to struggle. Because if I go back, if I were to go like pitch for pitch or, or hitter for hitter uh, throughout my long baseball career, I would go insane realizing how many maybe good quality pitches I made that 
didn't record an out that maybe went for a hit, extra base hit, home run, whatever, or maybe my fielders misplayed, or maybe just took took a bad hop. Maybe they hit it and hit the base and bounced over my first baseman's head. You know, all these different things. Um, You know, maybe the umpire missed the call. You know, clear clear strike should have been um, should have been called, but instead it was called a ball. All these things. These are a call completely out of my control, and I made it a habit to just sort of let them go as best I could because really they're just sort of acts of nature, acts of God, whatever you want to call it, and they're with, they're beyond a baseball player's control. So what we call there is it's, it's called variance. So in poker or any other kind of game of chance, there's sort of a set, um, there's a sort of like set odds, and in poker it's more controllable than almost any other uh, table game, but within these set odds, you will still have upswings and downswings. So I'm going to share a little bit about my uh, I've been playing poker for about four months, and I played 20 different times. I play an average of three hours when I get a chance to play, and over the course of those 20 times, I've made $1,300. So, you know, just again, it's just a hobby for me, something to do, and the, the money just makes it sort of like a little more exciting. So on average, I've made um, about $50 per 100 hands. So every 100 hands I play, you play about 40 to 50 hands an hour. I come out with about 50 bucks. Um, the first two times I played, I lost $250. I, obviously, I was like a brand new, and it was a, a quick like, hey, you're not real good at this, and you're kind of flustered, so I'll just take your money, kind of that kind of thing. But if you throw those out, for the, the, the remaining 18 times, I left the table making money 13 of them. So over the grand total of 20 times playing, I've lost money seven times. I've gained money 13 times. My best stretch... I made $440 in a row without losing any, and my worst was I lost $180 over the course of two different uh, playing sessions. So if you're, to char- if you're to chart this all out, obviously this is an audio podcast, a graph would go great right here, but um, if you're to chart this out, it would be an upward trend. You know, you could draw a nice uh, line showing my progress over time, but there'd be large upswings and downswings. So over the course of a 0 to $1,300 graph, you know, a $400 um, upswing, 440 was my best stretch without losing. Um, that's a pretty steep line. And then to lose 180, which is about 15% of the total gain over time, is also a steep drop. So if you look at this line, it wouldn't be a linear progression. I mean, it would, you know, over time. But if you go at a little more of a myopic short-term view, there's a lot of ups and downs. But because I've been a successful player and I've read a lot of books and I've studied up and I know what I'm doing, um, over time, I make the right plays. So you're probably wondering, how does this relate to baseball? Well, it relates in a lot of ways. So especially as a pitcher, you have very little control once the ball leaves your hand. And when I say very little, I mean essentially zero. So everything that you can control happens up until the ball leaves your fingertips. And once it does... It's going to fly, according to physics, the only way it could fly based on how you threw it. And the hitter, his brain is going to do his little thing, and he's going to decide whether he wants to swing, where he thinks the ball is going to be if he does swing, all those sort of things. The umpire is going to make his best judgment possible. And then let's say the ball is put in play. Pitcher has no, again, once it leaves his hand, he makes the best judgment he can of where he wants to throw it, how, how hard to throw it, how much spin to apply, you know, what location to, to, to aim for based on, you know, the, the previous uh, count and the situation, all that stuff. Once he leaves his hand, it, all bets are off. So hitter puts it in play. It takes five hops. You know, the physics of the ball, the, you know, the initial trajectory, the initial velocity, the spin of it, the grass, the dirt, the moisture that day, the rain, all that stuff, um, all that, how good the, the groundskeeper is. All that stuff is going to factor to how that ball bounces. And then your shortstop is going to come into play. Say it's it's hit right at him. He's going to, you know, pick up the ball, get into his his stance. He's going to do his best to field the ball, and then he's going to make his throw to first. And so basically what I'm saying is, like, once the pitcher leaves his ball, and this is obvious, everything else is pretty much immutable. It's basically determined the hitter's going to do his thing, the umpire's going to do his thing, and your fielders are going to do his thing. And physics is going to govern pretty much all the rest. So... For a pitcher to get upset with results once he releases a pitch is really pretty illogical. It's kind of like if you're to build a car and then the car breaks down on you. Would you would you scold the car? You might be mad that your car broke down, but you wouldn't 
shame your car. You wouldn't send your car to its room. You know, you wouldn't uh, take away Netflix for a week because the car um, let you down. The car was going to break down the only possible way that it broke down because of its component parts, because of the roads you drove it on, because of its service record, because of the salt from the road, depending on your climate, all those things, the car that you built was going to break down when it broke down, pretty much based on determinism and, and everything that had happened to it. So that's the same way once a pitcher releases his pitch. Now, as we talk into uh, a little bit more about variance, you know, it's it's one of those things where there's slumps, right? So if you have a hitter's batting average over the course of a season, and this is where variance comes into the hitting side of it, you know, he hits 300 for the year. Let's say that, say he only gets uh, 100 at-bats, just to make this simple. He gets 30 hits and 100 at-bats. He might get six hits in a row. He might go six for six, and then he might go 0 for 40, right? But over time, it's going to average out and be the same thing. You'd see this graph where there's fluctuation. He has hot hot months, he has cold months, and all this sort of stuff. But if he's a good hitter, hitter over time, he's going to adjust. And being a good hitter over time simply means that he has upswings and downswings so he has a 400 month and he hits 200 for a month and those two months average out to 300 hitter for the you know those two months so with all this stuff it's baseball is really just a big game of being of trying to be consistent and trying to stay your course no matter what happens and it's really just kind of like holding on when you hit one of those slump periods so I remember really the last well my whole last year was pretty much all slump but in years 2015 and 2014 for me, um, I hit slumps in July. And I think it was in part because I threw a lot of fastballs and I uh, I was a relatively predictable, kind of aggressive pitcher. So I was in the strike zone a lot. I didn't walk many guys. I struggled to throw my off-speed stuff for strikes in 2014. And uh, so hitters, after they'd come around and seen me in a couple different games, they started to have a good idea of how to face Dan Blewett. And so I had to be a little bit sharper as I went to combat the fact that they now had like a pretty decent scouting report on me. And they'd seen my pitches. They they kind of knew what I was going to do and how I was going to act um, pitching towards them. So each July, I hit this stretch. It was usually like 10 days to two weeks where I just pitched bad. And in some of those outings, I like physically did not throw the ball where I wanted to throw it. I make bad pitches. But in others, it wasn't that way. In other outings, I'd throw the ball well, in general, make good pitches, and I'd come away kind of scratching my head. I'd be like, I feel like I threw the ball well today. Like on days that I I get three outs and I don't allow a run and I strike out a guy or two, you know, today where I allowed a run or two and I walked a guy and I gave a bunch of hits, today feels similar to the days, to the good days. You know, when I hit my spots, but sometimes they just punch that ball through the hole. Or I, uh, you know, I've I've thrown a million hanging curveballs in my life. And some of those days, a hanging curveball gets popped up, and other days it gets punished. You know, it gets pumped over the wall for a, a game-winning home run. Um, and so if you start to focus on the negatives, number one, you lose fact of the fact that, like what I just explained, is that for every time you make a good pitch and they hit a line drive through the hole, there's a million times where you throw one right down the middle and they take it, or they swing through it, or they pop it up. And, you know, baseball is a crazy game where you feel pressure mounting and you see situations. And, you know, we've seen this all summer in, uh, as I travel and watch our amateur baseball teams. You know, you're in the last inning, you, get, you have a one-run lead, and your pitcher gets an out, and then it's walk, it's walk, and then hard hit single at the middle, and they hold the runner at third. But now it's bases loaded and one out, and you're like, oh, man, a single is going to lose the game. And it's super-duper tense, and then everyone's, like, heightened, and we're like, oh, my God, what's he going to throw? And then first pitch, in the hitter's eyes, he swings and pops it up. And you're like, oh, okay, free out. And then next pitch, first pitch, uh, ground ball right to second base, and the game's over. So it's not like a, lin- a linear progression in baseball. It never has been. It never will be where, you know, you watch a movie and the suspense mounts and it mounts and it mounts. And there's like this incredible, you know, climax that resolves all of the conflict. But in baseball, it's never that way. I mean, sometimes it is, but most of the time, it's just this rising and then falling because there's so much randomness and hitters are so different and pitchers are so different and the way everyone reacts to pressure is so different. So you often get these situations where you're like, oh man, I'm so nervous. This is such a high pressure situation. And then this situation just immediately diffuses itself with like no repercussions. And that's happened many, many, many times in my career where I've, I've been in a tough spot. Like I load the bases and now I'm 2-0 and and I got an out, and I'm like, oh, my God, 2-0, and bases loaded, one out, I'm screwed. I'm about to pipe this fastball because I, I have to catch up in the count. 
and he's going to clear the bases. And so I pipe that fastball, and you know what he does? Hits a one hopper to, se- to a second baseman, flips to short, inning, inning, double play, and you're like, oh, that was that was cool. And those are the times that you have to r- remind yourself that for every um, freebie that you get, you know, the baseball gods, quote-unquote, um, give the other team a blooper. And it's not that there's any room for superstition or for the baseball gods who are just really just a metaphor for superstition. Um, it's just that things even out over time. So there's a thing in pitching, well, not in pitching, just in baseball. It's a, a sabermetric stat called batting average for balls in play. It's abbreviated B-A-B-I-P. And this is taken at the major league level because obviously we don't have, uh, I mean, you can do this at any level, but you know most of these stats that uh, baseball analysts work with are from, from major league data. So the major league average for batting average for balls in play is about 300. And what batting average for balls in play is, is it's an aggregate batting average um, taken of all hits that are put in play. So regular batting average um, includes everything, strikeouts, every ball that you hit in play, and home runs. Batting average for balls in play is different in that it does not include um, home runs and does not include strikeouts. So only when you physically hit the ball into fair territory and it's not a home run does it count against your batting average for balls in play. So if you exclude strikeouts and you exclude home runs, most the, the major league average is about 300. So that means out of every 10 balls that are hit into play that are less than a home run, 3 out of the 10 become a hit. So, and that holds true even for Hall of Fame pitchers. So Greg Maddox, he's the only one I decided to write down here, but Greg Maddox's lifetime uh, batting average for balls in play is 286. That means when hitters hit the ball in the fair territory, they hit 286 off him. And that's two hits for every seven at-bats. Um, and I know that because that's, that's actually my lifetime batting average. I, got, I was four for 14 this one weird summer when I uh, played the National League Rules um, team in 2011. So anyway... Um, so think about that. Hall of Famer, two out of every seven balls that are hit become hits. You know, and so then well, you, well, you ask yourself, well, then how do these pitchers have such low batting averages against? And that's because they strike guys out, right? Even low strikeout pitchers strike out four or five batters per nine innings, which is a significant amount. And then obviously really high, uh, great stuff pitchers will strike, especially starters, you know, in the range of uh, seven to sometimes 10 strikeouts per nine innings and relievers, you know, nine to sometimes 14 strikeouts per nine innings. So, um, you know, striking out at least a guy in inning or more um, is a goal for a reliever. And if you get to one per inning as a starter, then you're you're really pretty filthy. So um, batting average for balls in play is an interesting stat to, to, to keep in mind because it gives you a good idea of how well you're actually doing as a pitcher. Because when you start to factor in luck, Again, 300 is the average for all major leaguers. So if you have a major leaguer who's he just got called up and he's pitched 100 innings and his ba- and you look at his batting average for balls in play and it's 220, that's an unsustainable batting average for balls in play, meaning that he's getting some luck that some of the balls that are hit are finding fielders more often than normal. Because again, 300 is normal. That again, Sandy Koufax, Greg Maddox, Randy Johnson, all these guys have a batting average for balls in play around the 300 mark, you know, plus or minus. Um, and so no one over time can prevent bloopers. They can't prevent um, ground balls that go through the hole. And so as I watch baseball, after I started learning about some of these stats a couple of years ago, you just start to realize there's no difference between a ground ball that's hit to a shortstop and becomes a double play or a ground ball that's at the exact same speed off the bat but goes in the hole between third and short, right? The difference is that the fans get to applaud the hitter for getting a base hit. Like, oh, great job, great job, that ball that goes between third and short and goes into the left field for a hit. But that same exact ground ball that goes into the shortstop's mitt is an inning-ending double play. And, oh, man, that guy stinks. How could he do that, right? So there's almost no difference, right? He hit the ball. It was on the ground. The hitter got lucky when it goes in the hole. He got unlucky when it went to the hitter or went to the fielder. Same thing for the pitcher. He gets lucky when it goes to the fielder and unlucky when it goes in the hole. So now obviously like the better the fielders that you have, um, the better chance you have to record outs on batted balls as a pitcher, right? So that's why defense is, is being proven as more and more um, important than ever. And there's more uh, different um, sabermetrics and advanced um, statistics that help measure fielding ability. So 
for example, I'm reading this 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 great book that I recommend uh, by Keith Law. It's called Smart Baseball, and he talks about fielding percentage and how fielding percentage only measures um, errors and chances. So when you a fielder touches a ball, he either makes a play or he makes an out, but it doesn't measure balls that he doesn't get to, right? So if you had, say we took, um, say we took Donald Trump, and he played shortstop for the Yankees, and in a game they hit 10 balls toward Donald Trump, and one is hit right at him, and he fields it, and he makes the play to first. The other nine, he doesn't even get a glove on. Um, Donald Trump's fielding percentage for that day is 1,000. It's like, oh, man, Donald Trump could play for the Yankees. He's got an incredible fielding percentage. But he should have probably fielded all nine of those other ground balls hit to him at short, and a normal fielder would have, um, and an exceptional fielder maybe fielded some balls that are even farther out of the way. Um, but he didn't touch any of them, so they became hits, and they didn't get recorded against his fielding percentage. So he explains really well in his book how— um, not Donald Trump, Keith Law, how fielding percentage is a very flawed stat because it doesn't really give you a good idea of how good a fielder is, how many balls he can get to, his range, all you know, things like that. So there's those other new stats. Um, one of them is called ultimate zone rating, and it explains a pitcher or a, a fielder's chances. Um, so how many putouts, how many chances he can get uh, compared to the average. So if you're a shortstop and or say the, the average for all shortstops is they, they field 100 ground balls in a season, okay? And then one shortstop fields 120. Well, you say, well, well how did he get a 20% more than the average? Well, it's probably because he had better range, and he was getting to balls that other fielders didn't get to. So that is really the more valuable hitter, right? He's going to have a greater impact on the game in helping convert batted balls into outs. So, again... There's a lot of really fascinating things going on with baseball and the analytics world, and I'm excited I get to speak at Sabre Seminar, which is a a uh, baseball analytic conference up in Boston in a month. Um, actually, it's about three weeks now. So um, I'm really, uh, really excited to starting to learn about all this because it, it helps explain the game that I grew up playing, and there's just a lot of things that I didn't realize or didn't know, um, things that are going on sort of underneath our noses that explain a lot of what's going on. And when you start to learn about this, when you start to learn, okay, three out of 10 balls that are put in play are going to be hits no matter what, why should I be mad at them, right? Why should I be mad at the bloopers when I know that a line drive is going to find a, a you know a hitter's glove? Why should I be mad about that, that ground ball in the hole when it just as easily could have been into my shortstop's glove through no fault to anyone, you know, just random chance and let it there. Hitters don't try to hit balls through the hole they try to hit balls hard. They try to hit them where they're pitched and barrel them up. Um, but they don't. They have no control over, oh, I'm going to hit this ground ball between the shortstop and the third baseman. No hitter's ever said that. You know, they just try to hit the ball hard, hit it where it's pitched. And, and when they do that, you know, higher exit velocities off the bat, those convert into hits more often. And obviously when you're not hitting balls sky high, and when you're hitting more line drives and, and squaring them up, they become hits more often. So that's, to me where a lot of this variant stuff comes back into baseball. And so the way you make money at poker, one of the ways is, is learning what plays are profitable. So in this example where I had, you know, I had pocket aces and this guy called me with, I think he called me with King Jack and he made two, he hit two jacks on the, uh, on the flop to make three of a kind and my pair of aces ended up losing. Over the long time, if he calls my bet, which I, I made a large bet, um, he calls with King Jack, I call with, a pair of aces, he has to make two pair or better to beat me. And two pair or better is a much more rare hand than one pair. So over time, if he calls and I call, I have aces, he is king jack, I'm going to win four out of five times. So over time, if I always make that bet with that hand and he calls with that hand, I will be profitable, right? So if I bet $100 each time over five times, I'll win four out of five times and I'll win $400 over time and I will lose one out of five times just by random chance and I will lose $100. But over time, that will be a profitable play, right? So that's sort of how you make money playing poker. That's how you um, are profitable over time. And that's why I didn't get mad when I got busted three times in a row on a guy making bad plays because I wanted to make the right plays. And that's my goal when I play is I want to make the right plays so that I know I'm, I'm playing good poker and that over time, the odds will always be in my favor. That doesn't mean they're always on your side in a given instant. But over time, I'll be profitable. I'll make the right plays and I get paid off for them. So in baseball, it's the same exact way, right? You throw the ball down the middle every time, you will get punished for it over time. 
when you make quality pitches. So when I make a, you know, I, I hit my spot and I throw a pitch down and away around the corner, sometimes the hitter will barrel it up and shoot a line drive into the right field gap or down the right field line for a double. Most of the time, though, they're going to roll over, hit the ball on the ground, and roll into a double play, or they're going to strike out, or just hit a weak ground ball, and I'll get and I'll get the out that I need. So, I know that when I make quality pitches, over time, in the long run, those are profitable plays for me as a pitcher. Those will get me paid. Those will get me a contract. They'll get me renewed. They'll keep me in the game, and they'll help keep my ERA and my my relevant numbers down. Um, even though, if you do read uh, Mr. Law's book, he says ERA is a very irrelevant stat, which he makes a good argument for. But anyway, so that's how we really need to think about this as athletes is I need to do my best and I need to understand the game and I need to try to make good plays that are going to pay me off over time. And when I make good pitches and I make smart pitch calls as a baseball pitcher, those are what are going to get me paid over time and they're going to lead me to have consistently good results. But I will never have good results every single time I make a good pitch. Sometimes the umpire will screw you. That's part of it. The umpire will equally make bad calls that benefit you. I've, I've walked off innings countless times in my career, like kind of like, sorry, dude. I'm like, that was definitely a ball, but you're out and I'm out of the inning, so I'll take it. You know, and then conversely, you know, he'll not punch a guy out on a clear strike and you have to make another pitch to him. And then sure enough, he hits a double or something on that next pitch. But over time, it all sort of adds, it all pretty much evens out. So for me, as we kind of circle back to the baseball gods and to superstition. So my friend, John Duffy, he was a a coach of mine in summer baseball. He first started talking about the baseball gods. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, that's, you know, you you like when you play the game the right way, when you do things the right way, um, you know, the baseball gods reward you for it. And so obviously there's no baseball gods. Like that's just a silly uh, metaphor for doing things right. But in general, when you focus on yourself, controlling the things that you can control, and on doing things the right way, things come back to you. You know, I don't believe in the idea of karma either. But when you're good to other people, other people are tend they tend to be good back to you. And the law of reciprocity is extremely strong. Where you know, if you go out of your way to help someone, a they might help you directly in some other situation, but. Just in general, if you're a helpful person and you're a kind person and you and you spread kindness and and uh, and generosity around, other people are going to pick up on that and they're going to be generous and kind to you in your time of need, even without being asked to do so. Right? That's just sort of how it works, and it's not karma. There's no there's no like telephone operator up in the sky like those old plugs, um, you know, for like the the phones and the phone lines in like the 40s. There's no person like plugging oh he did a good deed so let's connect him to some more karma like that that doesn't exist but when you're good to people reciprocity is a a very strong thing and it ends up coming back and when you're negative towards people and you're putting out bad vibes into the world the same thing right people don't respond well when you're walking around scowling and and just being negative nancy or whatever it is um what goes around comes around you know the categorical imperative the golden rule whatever you want to call it um, and in baseball, it's the same thing. People that hustle, they tend to just make things happen. They tend to get on base more. They tend to put pressure on fielders. So when guys that hustle, they consistently just sort of like make things happen and they'll get the extra base. They'll get the benefit of the doubt. They'll get the call at first or, you know, whatever. Um, whereas the guys that are lazy and they don't hustle very well and they don't, uh, they don't run balls out or they just in general put in the least amount of effort possible, they consistently get calls against them right when hitters are grumbling at the plate and they're like oh that call is terrible and they're just rolling the rise of the umpire or maybe saying stuff to the umpire what do you think the umpire is going to do he's going to ring him up when he gets a chance to right and same thing for pitchers so pitchers when you're all over the strike zone and you're like one ball at your face one ball in the dirt one ball at your shoulder next ball boom outside corner right on the black oh man ball well no that was a strike well it's a ball because you're throwing balls in just random locations you're not even close to the strike zone, but when you're consistently hitting the catcher's mitt or close in little in like nice little groupings, umpires will tend to give you the benefit of the doubt, right? And that's just sort of how that works. Um, so me, to me, that's part of the baseball gods' sort of influence is that when you do things the right way, when you're a good player, when you don't grumble when it doesn't go your way, and when you're positive and just accept the uh, the good things when they happen, um, you just sort of dwell. You end up just really more dwelling on on uh on the good things and you sort of highlight the good things so 
I'm certainly not going to get into real religion, but if you're to pray every night for something, so if it's every, every night I pray for, I don't know, rain, it's not going to rain every night. And, but some nights it will rain. And so I could say, oh, my prayers are answered. And maybe they are. Again, I'm certainly not going to make any uh, religious statements here. But if I prayed every night, it's clearly not going to rain every day. And when it does rain, it's, it's up to you to decide whether, you know, whoever you were praying to answered your prayers or that if you just pray every day for rain, you're going to get rain some days and you're not going to get rain other days, right? So that's to me sort of how superstition works as we kind of transition to that. Whereas, I mean, look. Guys wear the same silly red underwear they wear. They don't wash their clothes. Um, they put their hats a certain way. You know, all like same seats, same seats. You know, everyone's sitting in a spot. And a guy hits a bases clearing double. So we go back to our same seats because that was giving our hitter good juju. Like, I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's all nonsense. You know, there's the big ones in baseball, like jumping over the line, like don't don't mar the foul line. And then there's the, uh, you know, don't tell the pitcher, don't say it out loud that he's throwing a no-hitter or you'll, uh, you'll jinx him. I mean, and the question is, is this. At what point, if I say, oh, man, Johnny Holstaff's got a no-hitter going, where, uh, how is that going to affect the flight of the baseball? How is that going to affect the physics? Is, because I said that, is there some, like, again, like a, a, a karma, a, a superstition operator in the sky who's like, oh, Dan said that, he, uh, the, Dan said that the uh, no-hitter is uh, in effect. I guess we should send a little karma down his way, send a little superstition down his way. Like, no, that there's no, there's no, there's no transition. There's no transaction between, um, when someone says, Oh, he's got a no hitter going that now, because you said that the ball is going to bounce a little bit differently and it's going to go through the hole. And so instead of into the third baseman's glove, it doesn't exist. Like we can all agree that that's a silly idea, right? There's no way me saying he's got a no hitter going, is going to affect the flight of the baseball, the way the pitcher throws it and the hitter th- swings at it and the, where the ball's bouncing and how hard it was hit. That's all basically predetermined by our world and the gravity and the air and the baseball and the bat and the collision between the two, the way the pitcher threw it, who the field, like all that stuff, in, again, in my sense, is pretty much determined. It's determinism. Once the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, everything that's going to happen is going to happen. And I do not see where there's some inroad to affecting the flight of the baseball via where I was sitting, how my hat is turned, or, you know, what someone said. Uh, It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just really illogical and silly. But, I mean, baseball is a game. It's a kid's game, right? So if if that's, like, what you like doing and you get more hits with your little lucky red socks or something, um, that's fine. But if you're wearing your lucky red socks every day or you're not washing your underpants every single day, I mean, you go 0 for 4, don't you? And you go 0 for 4 with your smelly underpants on. So w- would they fail you that day? You know? I mean, again, when we look at the variance of of everything over time, if you're doing the same thing every day, you're doing the same thing with your superstitious object. Um, so how is that working out for you, right? If you pray for rain every day in a- Arizona, it could rain three days in a row, and then it could not rain for 97 days. Um you know, where your prayers answered, uh, you know, with superstition, it's just like, if I wear my, my lucky hat, or I wear my mismatched socks, or I always wear my gold chain, um, you're going to go over 20 wearing those. And did you just forget? Like, do you need to throw that away now? Um, but the fact of the matter is that we just only, we only highlight the positives or the negatives, And then we sort of ignore the other half of it, right? We don't, we, we ignore the over fours, we ignore the days you wore your, your lucky socks and you got absolutely shelled um, and the scout left, you know, as he was watching you. Um, we ignore that, right? You don't throw your lucky shirt away that fast. But, you know, superstition is just one of those things where, A, it doesn't hurt anybody. So if you want to hop over the foul line and keep quiet when a guy's got a no-hitter and, you know, wear the same, you know, Under Armour shirt the whole the whole season, like, go for it. More power to you. It doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody. Um but to say that it actually has some sort of effect is just, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, um, not that anyone's, not that anyone's claiming that it isn't. I think everyone at a certain level realizes that superstition is, is silly. But then again, I mean, a lot of people get pretty dug into their habits and they get pretty dug into their superstitions and they don't want to put anything on the negative side. So, you know, why not? Of course, at the same time, that's sort of how obsessive compulsive disorders kind of arise where, all right, well, 
if I don't turn off the light switch 17 times before I leave the house, the house is going to burn down. Um, not true for sure. And it starts to impact your life, but I've never seen superstition, you know, come to that point. But you know, at the end of the day, all this stuff is governed by, by physics. Baseball, I think more than most sports are uncontrollable, um, really do a very high degree. And uh, if you're not good at dealing with failure and dealing with all that, it just makes it a very difficult sport to uh, to have good command of because you really just can't command it. You can't control so much about baseball compared to other sports. Um, you know, there's just so many other things that go into your ERA, into your fielding percentage, into your um, batting average. All those things are so much luck involved. You know, and, and famously in the movie Bull Durham, um, the main character Crash Davis talks about the difference between a 250 hitter and a 300 hitter over the course of you know a full major league season. And it's only 25 hits, and he's like 25, you know, dying quails and um, humpback liners and whatever it is that he says. But 25 hits, like it is, it's crazy. You know, you play 162 games, and that's one extra hit in 25 of those games. That's one extra hit um, every sixth game you know a little more than six game I mean that's just crazy if so if you get like oh one more broken bat liner over the shortstop's head every six game you become a 300 hitter in a hall of famer versus a 250 you know average sort of replacement level player so you know baseball is just funny like that and it's it's a tough sport to deal with because of that and uh like I said the slumps are something that's really tough to come back from sometimes so I remember in 2000 I think it was 2014 I just I hit my rough patch and I remember I got a loss in one game. I got a loss in the next game. And I was terrified that I was going to get three straight losses. I got walked off twice in a row. Um, and I just remember just feeling like completely powerless. Like, this is terrible. Because when patterns get going, um, they're sometimes hard to break. And the the biggest thing is that you mentally start to, to break down with it. So I just remember that, um, no, actually this was 2015. So I was the setup man. So I pitched the eighth inning in save situations, and I pitched the ninth inning when it was tied my whole season for 2015. It's one of the best years of my career, but I struggled in the second half. So in July, I had a, a pretty pretty rough like two-week stretch. Saw my ERA balloon a little bit above two for the first time that year, and then it eventually came back down. But I just remember this like three-outing stretch where we were struggling to score runs, and I was pitching in tie games on the road like every single night. So... I gave up like the the game losing run on on one night, and then I gave up. I think I got walked off the next night um, with a you know base hit or something. And then I just remember pitching that third time, and I'm like, and I was mentally definitely thrown off by it. I was I was frazzled, and I was like, I've lost the game. Like each of the last two times I've gone out there, I got a loss. I got a walked off. I got I blew the game for my team. What if this happens the third time? Like that was going through my head. What if this never stops happening? What if I just continue to blow games until they get rid of me? Um, and it's hard to come back that way. And, and oddly enough, I threw okay in both of those two outings where I got losses. I could have pitched a little better. I probably should have chosen different pitches looking back on it. But I uh, I felt like I threw the ball pretty well. Like I felt like when I got walked off on both of those nights, I didn't feel much different. Like I physically did my job worse than I did on other nights when I'd get three outs and, and preserve a lead. But on those two nights, I got walked off. And then on the third night, oddly enough, I threw like crap. I mean, I really did not throw the ball well. I was up in the zone. I threw a ton of balls over the middle. I fell behind the count. I did everything wrong. That usually results, on average, in me giving up runs and lots of hits and base runners and walks and uh, having an unproductive night. And on the third night, I threw like crap, and I got three outs. It was like pop-up, pop-up, fly ball. It's like, okay, thank you. I needed that. That was big for me mentally. Um, but that's just sort of how the game is. And so you have to be mentally strong to kind of see through the rough patches where, all right, like, you know, I know I didn't get good results, but I felt like I threw the ball well. You Maybe it bounces off some people who can be objective with you. Um, but you just can't panic and you can't freak out every time you don't get good results because if you do that, it starts to spiral out of control and then you become a problem. When if you go out there and start pitching with fear, then you're really in trouble. Um, and that's that's true not just with pitching, but with any sport. If you start going out there expecting to lose or afraid that you've lost your edge, 
then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you will lose your edge because you're afraid that you have or you think that you have. Um, so that's where just like having an even temperament and and some professionalism and really just being uh, kind of arrogant about it. It's like, look, I if I get if I blow a lead, it was a fluke. If they get hits off me, it was a fluke. Even if it happens five times in a row, they were all flukes. And sometimes, just like in poker, that happens. And it'll be fluky for a while. And then it'll just sort of write itself. Because over time, it's going to write itself. You know, you get a coin today. If you want to test this out, get a coin and do 10, 10 flips. You know, see if it lands heads or tails 10 times. It's not going to be five. Out of, it's not going to be five of each, probably. Probably might be seven of one. It might be nine of one one time. But if you do it hundred times and then a thousand times it's going to start to average out more to 50 50 because those are the odds of flipping a coin on one side or the other so you know that's sort of where we we kind of get off the ship is like we have to ride the storm out and remind ourselves that what we're doing works but at the same time and this is where it gets tricky is that at the same time we also have to be introspective enough to know when things aren't actually working when this slump needs to be paid attention to and like look i'm not getting results and i'm not just gonna like weather it i need to see what's going wrong i need to fix it so it's always been a little bit of that with with me so when i had my my bad stretches i remember one game i uh i got i was on the road and i uh let up the leadoff hitter on and he ended up stealing second base on me so the, the winning run was on second and there was a guy at the plate. He was a former big leaguer. He played for the Cardinals. And so when you know enough about guys, and I'd faced him before, and I, I'd thrown fastballs by him, actually. He'd, he uh, he kind of declined in his day since uh, since his, his peak of his career. But um, So I knew that I, I could basically throw the ball by him if I needed to. But at the same time, I'm like, but he was a major leaguer, and he was a really successful player. Um, certainly I can't just throw six fastballs in in a bat and not expect him to, like, figure it out and catch up the one right like that's pretty reasonable to think so I just remember I had the runner on second and he was late on fastballs I got the two strikes and he was late 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 and I'm like all right like I don't throw a 99 miles an hour like you know I'm low to mid 90s and so um certain sooner or later the more fastballs he sees like this guy's gonna catch up and I was just trying to figure out like when do I switch pitches when should I throw a curveball or change up or whatever and you know, finish him off, but he kept being late, kept being late. And my big concern in this situation was that if he just catches up enough to punch a hard hit ground ball through the right side hole, the game's over, right? The runner on second, the guy was fast. Um, it didn't require a home run or a double to, to end the game. It just required a single. So I was just getting more and more afraid that if I kept throwing fastballs, he was just going to hit one hard enough in the infield to the right side, get it through, and the game's over. So finally, after this long about where he just keeps fouling stuff off, He's still clearly late. I decided to go curveball, and I hang it. I, I mean, I, it wasn't the worst curveball I'd ever thrown because when people say hanging curveball, in one sense, it's like when you throw a cement mixer where you don't spin it very well and it doesn't break very sharp and it just sort of hangs up there. But then the other sense is um, curveballs that are thrown well that have good bite and good depth, and they're thrown like they're a quality pitch, but they're thrown into the strike zone. So they're for a called strike. So really it's kind of a... Uh, it's it's kind of a I don't know it's 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 a misnomer because Clayton Kershaw could throw a curveball that's right down the middle for a called strike on the first pitch hitter doesn't swing that's a good pitch like that's where he needs to throw it to get a called strike but then if he throws that later in the at bat and the guy golfs it into this into the bleachers they call that a hanging curveball so it's not that it was hanging but it it was definitely in the wrong location for that point in the at bat so once you get two strikes as long as it's not like 2-2 two, two or 3-2 probably, you know, if you're ahead and you have two strikes, you're probably just going to bounce the curveball, you know, throw it bouncing off the point of the plate, whatever. Um, so in this case, my intention was to bounce it. You know, I, I didn't want him to be able to hit it. He'd seen so many fastballs, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I threw the one that broke right into the middle of the plate, and he picked it up, and he just golfed it out. And as soon as it left his bat, like, he kind of shouted, and, you know, his dugout erupted, and it was like a no-doubter. So it was like seven fastballs, and then I threw a crappy curveball in the middle of the plate, and he smashed it, game over, um, walk-off two-run home run. So as I'm walking off the mound, um, obviously I, I was really mad. I was also having a bad stretch, and uh, it was like the icing on the icing of the cake. And, uh, you know, a day later, after I calmed down, my, 
my buddy was like, dude, what were you doing? He's like, he was nowhere near your fastball. Um, everyone thinks you're an idiot for throwing that curveball. Like, why, why would you do that? I'm like, I, I mean, he was going to adjust sooner or later. I'm like, I, I just didn't want him to put a ball through the hole. Um, and I figured, you know, if I just bounced a curveball, he's like, yeah, sure, you could have bounced it, but you gave yourself no margin for error because if you didn't, that was what was going to happen because he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't making an adjustment. Yeah, he was late, but just because he's late doesn't mean he's not not making an adjustment. So he was. He was still spraying balls, like, over the, the dugout, um, you know, after, you know, like, foul ball six and seven. And so, uh, you know, he, he wasn't. He wasn't making an adjustment, but I was reading into it, something that wasn't there. I switched pitches and I got punished for it. Um, and so in situations like that, that was a slump that was caused by poor pitch selection and, you know, maybe not reading the situation well. Um, but at the end of the day, it was just in this broader sense that, you know, you have to just, in one sense, continue to pitch to your strengths, but also figure out when you start to make adjustments when you're not going well. So, in both these seasons, in the, in the first season, I didn't have a good off-speed pitch. So when I hit my slump, I started to uh, I started to develop a, another pitch that I could hopefully throw for a strike a little more. I started throwing a cutter, and I still tried to find my curveball and change up, and they were just really inconsistent. But um, that slump in that 2011 or 2014 season, it just helped me. I was like, look, I just need something else to get them off my fastball because they're starting to figure it out. And the next season, I just honestly just hit a bad patch. Like I didn't change much. Um, I started pitching inside a little bit more. I already pitched inside a lot, but um, that second season there wasn't really anything to change. I just need to, I don't know, kind of weather it and just be a little tougher and I don't know, read hitters a little bit better. So you know, with all that stuff, I could have gone to superstition. I could have, you know, freaked out and started changing my mechanics or started changing what I did well. But you know, I, I try to just find the balance of what I was already doing well because I was successful all the way up to that point. So it's not like I just completely changed. It's not like I, I blew my arm out and I was throwing ten miles per hour slower, and that's why I was in a slump. Um, <clears throat> you know, with all this stuff, it's it's hard to figure out sometimes what's going on. But if you've been successful to that point chances are you had the ability to keep doing it so it's some minor variable probably or just variance that's saying like hey things aren't going well right now um but you just need to be be cognizant of you know what you still are as a whole um if the competition level really changed because usually that's the bigger thing so obviously i didn't play affiliated baseball when guys get promoted yeah, uh, you know, they go from single A to double A or double A to triple A or triple A to the big leagues. There's a new learning curve because they're suddenly facing hitters that are all better who have all played at a high, higher level and they're smarter and they're up at a higher level for a reason. So you go up in a level, you have to adapt to it. So some of the stuff that you used to do that worked no longer works and you have to find ways to adjust on the fly. And that's difficult, you know, and there were grades of uh, different leagues in, in independent ball where I played. So my first year I played in the rookie level league, the frontier league, and um, after that, I played in the American Association, which is a, a nice, strong mid-tier league. And then um, I did my best to adapt to that league. I struggled mightily, as you probably heard in, in episode 13 of my podcast. But, um, you know, I started to adapt, and then I went back to the Frontier League, and I dominated it. So after being in the Frontier League, going up, and then coming back down, um, you know, I, I was well aware of what that league took, and I was a little bit above it at that point. And then as I went back into the Atlantic League in subsequent years after my second elbow injury, um, I had to pull myself up to that league in a hurry because it was mostly former AAA and big league hitters. And uh, I got smacked around a bunch in that first season. Then I started to get my footing that second season, was an all-star. And then my third season, um, I struggled and wasn't quite healthy. And, you know, there are a lot of different factors. And um, even that third season, I just like felt like I threw the ball reasonably well most of the time. And I just wasn't getting the results that I wanted. But, you know, with all this stuff, sports careers are long. Um, you know, so if superstition helps keep it light, helps keep it fun, helps kind of keep yourself out of your head, then by all means, go for it. Um, but athletes need to expect variance. They need to expect they're going to go through slumps. They need to expect that, you know, there's going to be good times and bad times. There's going to be times where they feel like they're invincible and times they feel like they just can't do anything that they used to be able to do, but they just have to ride it out. And then obviously there's the mental side of it where this is what can really separate. And this is again, why I recommend listening to episode 13 if you haven't, but 
when you hit those bad stretches, it will snowball quickly and spiral out of control if you don't mentally stay your course and mentally stay strong. Cause it's easy to be like, man, I suck. Like I, I just can't do this anymore. Maybe I, this is just it for me or I'm just afraid to play and I'm afraid of failure and fear of failure is the number one, I'd say probably a precursor to failure. If you're afraid of failing, you're going to fail. You have to play with a nice relaxed mindset and an aggressive mindset and some fluidity. And when you're afraid and you're afraid of consequences and you're afraid of failure and you're afraid of competition, you just can't, you just can't do it like that. So, you know, with all this stuff, um, you know, I, I highly recommend starting to read into a little bit about advanced uh, baseball metrics and saber metrics and all that stuff because it helps explain in a lot of different ways what's going on around you as a baseball player. And it'll explain away some of the bad stuff, just like with, you know, understanding of uh, batting average for balls in play. Um, and it'll also just give you some insight about how to play the game to optimize your strategy to to do well over time. You know, just like in poker, I read six different poker poker books to prepare myself for a game that I never played before. And they gave me the tools to then start to marry that with my own experience as I started to, to play it and, and, and get my feet wet. And same thing with baseball. Like, there's more knowledge out there than ever. And for you base dealers out there, do you know that stealing a base is only profitable for your team if you do it, if you're not caught more than once out of every four tries? I didn't know that, but I'm learning. So all these different things are really interesting. Um, I, so I highly suggest kind of picking up some articles or, or a book or two um, about advanced baseball statistics. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to lead some of you to, to kind of give up some of your superstition. Um, but it's also going to help you deal with failure and just help you understand the ups and downs and, uh, you know, what's going on around you in this in this game that we play. So thanks for being with us. We'll uh, We'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.